You're listening to The Spear, a podcast about the combat experience from the Modern War Institute at West Point. More than 100 meters outside the village, you were definitely getting in a firefight. My first patrol I took, we had a far ambush. And then it was just woof, a, a huge explosion. The primary threat was RKG-3 grenades, light machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing. Small arms fire, RPG fire. Explosively formed penetrators. Suicide bombs. And then that's about the time that the third IED went off. And that's when another grenade comes spinning over the side of the wall. And it's at that point the IED chain detonates. There was enemy in the wire. There was all these Humvees on fire. It, it was truly bullets flying from every angle that, that you could see. I open the door and look outside, and all I see is muzzle flashes. There's a guy on top with a 240, and the rounds pass right past his head. At that point, our instincts kicked in. One, one pilot on the controls, the other pilot was using his M4 to engage single-man targets on the ground. You're shooting at everything. It was a fight. Welcome to The Spear, the podcast about the combat experience, brought to you by the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm your host, Tim Heck, and today I've got a little bit of a different episode. Most of our episodes focus about combat, gunfights, IEDs, mortars, raids, and the like. Today we're going to look at something that junior and aspiring leaders across the Joint and Combined Force are going to be facing more and more of, and that's the lieutenant making strategic level decisions. So today I'm joined by Captain Pete Mitchell, an air defense officer who teaches here at West Point. Pete, welcome to the Spear. Thanks, Tim. Happy to be here. Pete, how'd you wind up in the Army? My parents always threatened to send me to reform school when I was in high school uh, because I was not very well behaved. Uh, A lot of uh, trouble with authority and things like that. At least that's what they were joking about. But uh, the joking, I think, tended more serious because I started actually looking into it. And I was looking at places like, uh, I grew up outside of Philly, so like Valley Forge Military Academy, and then kind of expanding outward from there, Norwich. And one of my neighbors was a West Point graduate, and he was just, he mentioned, hey, why not West Point? I was like, well, that kind of sounds, I thought it was unattainable at the time, because I always heard about West Point, you know, in semi-legendary tones and things like that. So I was kind of, well, all right, then why not? So I Checked out the application process. So I just applied, got some of the recommendations, went through the process. While you were here at West Point, what did you major in? Majored in international history. You commissioned as an air defense officer. What year is this? What's going on? In 2012, which was my commissioning year, I had multiple faculty and other cadets tell me that, uh, oh, you know, air defense, that's that's going away soon. That's going to become part of the field artillery. They're going to combine the branches. They're just going to call it artillery again, just like back in the day. And because of the current situation that the Army was in in Iraq and Afghanistan, air defense units were, were seen as kind of an anachronism. It was seen as something that was used during the Cold War. And, you know, of course, in the middle of Iraq and Afghanistan, war was always going to be like this, right? It was always going to be low intensity, irregular counterinsurgency, and there's no place there for large, bulky anti-aircraft missiles because the Taliban and, uh, you know, even ISIS, who come up later, they don't have any aircraft. Drones at this time were very, very primitive. They were large, they were bulky, and they were expensive. If there's no enemy air force, what's the point of having a counter air force in the Army's inventory? So that was just a, it was a general idea of uh, just like, well, why do you want to go air defense? I found it interesting because I had a physics uh, professor who was a colonel uh, when I was a when I was a sophomore, and he said 
something that kind of stuck with me. It's like, well, you know, in air defense, he was an old Patriot officer. He's like, you know, in air defense, you know, we never go out to the field without air conditioning because the computers need it. And at the time, I had just come out of Camp Buckner and it had rained, I swear, for the entire two months we were out in the field and out in the barracks. And uh, I was thoroughly sick of anything resembling light infantry and ruck marching. And so that kind of throwaway comment he made was like, that's really interesting because it sounds very unique because that level of equipment, like, ah, that's a computer that needs to be carefully taken care of. That means it's complex. That means it has a very, very important job to do. That little throwaway comment from my history uh, professor, or sorry, physics professor, that kind of led me down the path of looking more into it. It was not a very popular branch during my class, which is funny because now it's, I've determined from talking to cadets, it's very, very popular. So um, put it in my top three as, because, you know, back then we had to have a combat arms in our top three, so I picked that. And I was fortunate enough to get it. I was the last cadet in my class who was able to branch into air defense. What was the air defense training pipeline like? So uh, we went directly to Fort Sill. So at the time, the schoolhouse in air, the air defense schoolhouse, it had just moved because of BRAC, the Base Realignment Enclosure Act. It had moved from Fort Bliss, which is the traditional home of air defense. Its movement to Fort Sill meant that you could no longer do those live fires. So it was done in this interest of bringing together the artillery communities. So I was, I believe, the second air defense bullet class to do it at Fort Sill, not at Fort Bliss in 2012. I went there straight after graduation. Uh, The class started in August of 2012. And while we were there, there was only one track, and that was HIMAD. There were... There were no SHORAD, as in, excuse me, HIMAD, meaning um, high and medium range air defense, aka just Patriot at the time. And SHORAD had essentially been eliminated, meaning short range air defense, from the curriculum. Stingers and Avengers, which are, you know, line of sight within five or so miles, taking out helicopters and low flying aircraft. Because of Iraq and Afghanistan and the current way the war was going, Sure, I just disappeared from the curriculum. So all of us were trained on Patriot systems with the expectation that we would go to Patriot units. The difference between HIMAD and SHORAD, between a Stinger and a Patriot, is there a cut line that takes it from kind of a tactical level with the SHORAD to an operational or a strategic concern with the Patriot? Or, or what does that look like, you know, kind of to a lieutenant? Yeah, so... Shorad is definitely more of a tactical thing. It's it's meant, it is designed to operate with maneuver forces under the command of a maneuver commander, so like an infantry battalion commander or an armor brigade commander, not under an air defense commander. That's the way it should be. That's the way it was done in the 80s under airline battle and everything else, and during the Gulf War and during Operation Iraqi Freedom. HIMAD, high high to medium range air defense, because of the range of the Patriot, which is extensive, it can cover a lot of ground, uh, and that is a very powerful mobile radar. It needs to be coordinated with aerial assets. You need to know what the safe flight lanes are. You need to deconflict the airspace. So you need to be doing things that are far outside the purview of what an infantry battalion commander or even a brigade commander is generally aware of. So because of that, they fall under specialized air defense battalion and brigade commanders who then answer to echelons above core, a double AMDC, which answers usually directly to the combatant commander because they need to be talking constantly uh, with whatever the theater chaos, the combined air operations center is, you need to know whose aircraft those are, what they're flying, what the enemy has, what their you know threat patterns are, because any mistake in that will result in fratricide. 
because the missile doesn't care what it's shooting at. If the operator, the lieutenant in the van, by the way, because the second lieutenants are the ones in a Patriot and a Thad battery who in, are the engagement authority, basically, uh, one mistake and you're going to be killing a friendly pilot and its airframe, which happened a couple times during OAF. So like we learned that lesson the hard way. Uh, so because of that, it's very tightly controlled up at high med level. Shored, because you're directly looking at the target you're taking out, you can, you know, they call it visual aircraft recognition, VAR. You should know if it's an Su-24 or an A-10, you know, Thunderbolt, right? You need to know the difference between these aircraft. If it's an enemy drone, right, same thing. Engagement authority gets delegated down to, like, E-5 sergeant level, you know? The, the lieutenant has a collection of these, you know, pieces, these, these, you know, whatever it is, and you see it, you identify it correctly, you shoot it. That It goes down to the NCO level in that regard because, again line of sight and also very short time to react like sure you have you're talking seconds you know to react patriot you can see out if it's an aircraft you often have a span of minutes often unless it's an unusual situation to id it uh iff right you 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 ping it and you see if you get the proper response back um even tactical ballistic missiles you know you do usually have 15 30 seconds you know to to see it as it's coming up on scopes you have time to see it classify it and figure out whether it's friendly or not. The average lieutenant is going to go out and have, you know, the the weapons engagement authority down to that junior soldier, that that young NCO. But the weight has been put on you. How did that get addressed in the schoolhouse of the kind of the different I don't want to say realm, but the the different level of responsibility that you had because of the weapon system and the branch that you had gone into. Uh, drills, 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 drills. So we would run air battles pretty frequently in the schoolhouse, and then uh, when you would go down to your unit, constantly. So like the your the second when you arrive to your your Patriot or Thad unit as a as a high med officer, you are living in the van. You have your tactical control assistant, who's usually a senior E4 specialist or a or a or an E5 sergeant, ideally an E5 sergeant, uh, who is kind of sitting on your left side in the van, helping you. But you're the man or woman in the seat, and they make that the warrant officers who run this air battle training make it very very clear to you of the consequences of your actions. Um, for example, if you let a leaker, which is you know say a TBM or an aircraft, get through the screen and then it drops its you know whatever payload, that's called a crater, right? If if you crater, you know I remember. Uh, you know, Chief Knight, who was one of the warrants in my first unit, Alpha 4, he's like, yep, there you go. Way to go, Lieutenant Mitchell. 50,000 people dead. You know, it's a, it's a very sombering thing. He wasn't saying it in a joking way. He's saying, hey, this is serious business. That could have had a nuke on it. You, never, you do not know this. Like, sorry. So, like, it's a, could have, these are, these are high stakes uh, operations beyond what most second lieutenants, I think, even really consider. It's, it's not missile command because when it gets through, there's a real people on the other side. And if you doubt me, I mean, just look at the Ukrainians right now. They're fighting a desperate air defense battle against the Russians in Kiev, Lviv, you know, Zaporizhzhia. When these missiles are getting through, they're hitting hospitals, maternity wards, knocking out electricity, and people are dying. Not necessarily. Maybe it's not your fault, but guess what? You're still ultimately the officer behind that system. You have to know what happens when there is a leaker. You run these drills, you know that, you know, you're going to wind up seeing the world from a different perspective. What sort of operational type deployments did you wind up going on? Uh, seeing the world through a cathode ray tube, right? So uh, the 
The Patriots, now they've modernized, but they were still using the old 1980s tech, like CRT green on green type thing. And you learn to see the, uh, they joke like it's Neo from the Matrix, right? So you see all these little, you know, icons on a waterfall display coming down the screen. That's the way you see the van, uh, the world, is kind of bathed in shades of green. Thad was phenomenal, because that's the newer system, terminal high altitude air defenses. That had a color screen, you know, 256 color, you know, phenomenal, and a mouse that you could use. Patriot, you had to use a little scroll wheel in the center of the keyboard. Very old school tech. Fortunately, I grew up with older brothers who were using, you know, you know, I think I grew up using an Apple II GS PC when I was playing Oregon Trail. So I was kind of used to that, actually, which helped, gave me a slight advantage. But uh, every, some, other, some of the other kids, they had a bit of a learning curve to get with. So my first operational deployment, though, sorry to get to your point, was very immediate. So I graduated Bullock in December of 2012, and I got to my first unit right after uh, holiday block leave. So I got there you know, first week of January. And they moved me to Alpha 4 Thad, which at the time was the only operational Thad battery in the U.S. Army inventory. It was a brand new program of record or system of record. I think they had just started testing it in 2007. So it was, this sucker was hot off the press from Lockheed and Raytheon. And it was still, I think, technically prototyping. They had conducted 11 flight tests Usually, if they would go out to Hawaii, the Air Force would drop a target, and they would shoot it down. They went to the Marshall Islands, to Mech, and I think they also went to Alaska for one Kodiak. So these guys have been bouncing around the Pacific Rim, shooting down targets. And then in between targets, they were going out to the field and testing the radar up at White Sands. That's kind of was their... They weren't acting like an operational unit. They were acting like a test unit. And that's kind of what I thought I was getting into. Because like, oh yeah, no problem, right? This thing hasn't even smelled gunpowder yet. We're just going to keep testing. We were, so I think we we're supposed to go out to Hawaii again that summer, the summer of 2013, to do another you know, flight test. Uh, so I told my uh, then future wife this. I was like, oh, no problem. You know, this is going to be nice stability. Uh, ended up proposing to her over spring break. So in March, everything was looking great. Uh-uh. So one week after we get back from spring break, uh, North Korea, who at the time, uh, you know, they had just developed a new medium-range missile called the Musodon. It was, uh, or it is, it's essentially a, um, it's kind of like a Polaris. Remember the old submarine launch Polaris that we had? They took that and they put it on the back of a truck. So it had the range, a medium range of a submarine launch ballistic missile, but because it's North Korea, they don't really have the tech for that, they just made it land operable so you could move it all around and stuff like that this caused a lot of feathers to get ruffled in washington because before the north koreans could range okinawa japan obviously south korea but they couldn't threaten anything beyond that screen so the layered air defense systems we had patriot and we have patriot in korea we still do and then the uh, navy who are a big part of this by the way with the arleigh burke aegis um, destroyers they are always on patrol in the sea of japan watching for these things and they had the ability to intercept these shorter range missiles when the musadon got tested they fired it all the way over japan over the top of the air defense network and it landed somewhere in the north pacific that meant they could range guam which was a huge issue it's a major resupply hub for submarines and for carriers you can't have that and because of the nature of aegis aegis 
as a Navy system, it likes to intercept missiles when they're on their ascent phase, when they're going nice and slow and in a straight line. When they start coming down through the so-called terminal ballistic phase, they are moving very quickly. And the SM-3 missile is not really suited for that. It was originally designed for anti-ship missiles, so it likes slower, fatter targets. It can do it, but it's a stress to the system. So the Navy couldn't just move an Aegis destroyer off the coast of Guam to protect that. So I guess some things happened at the Pentagon and our battalion commander got a, excuse me, we didn't, our battery commander actually got the call. And it was the SEC Army wants to deploy Alpha 4 to Guam on a 96-hour PTDR. That was very interesting. 96 hours. You've just proposed. What do you tell your soldiers? What do you tell your fiancé? What did you tell yourself? It happened in a blur. I don't remember too much, to be honest. I remember telling my fiancé, sorry, honey, this should only be a few months. I remember that distinctly because the initial order was only for a three-month TCS. So I was like, oh, don't worry. You know, we'll go out there. And uh, it was a temporary, like a temporary duty assignment thing. I did not know at the time that 90-day TCSs are often extended out to a year because that's what the fine print says. The soldiers, I had a very good uh, platoon sergeant uh, who is now a warrant officer. He, he did a lot of that for me, um, and I was okay with that. So he... I, I remember sitting in with the office. We, I was the sensor platoon leader, so I was signed for the 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 radar and all the accoutrement that comes with that in a Thad battery. Uh, and then there was a, a launcher platoon leader who was signed for our three launchers. And then the fire control um, platoon leader. He was kind of the senior lieutenant. He was a first lieutenant at the time. He was the one who was like he was the best in the van. He was the most experienced, and he was signed for the the TFCC, which is the control center, the tactical control center for the whole thing. That's what kind of made our battery a THAAD battery was the fire control center. It told the launchers what to do and things like that. Our, my platoon sergeant brought our uh, soldiers into the office, and he says, hey, guys, you know where Guam is? And none of them knew where Guam was. I had only known because I, I had taken a class here on the Pacific War in World War II. And I was like, oh, yeah, we liberated that from the Japanese back in, like, 1944. I think that's where the B-29s took off, you know, to do a lot of bombing. That's it. That was my extent. No clue anything further. That was it. And they fortunately, we had our go bags ready because we were on um, Global Response Reaction Force, GRF. We were on that, so we already had our go bags. Again, we thought it was just a formality. We didn't think we were actually going to go on it. So we got all of our stuff ready for airlift. And so they brought Air Force guys in uh, from uh, Biggs Army Airfield, I believe. It's the, Air ba- it's the Air- Army Airfield attached to Fort Bliss, which way we were going to fly out of. We got all the stuff prepped for transport. We were working 18, 20-hour days for that stuff. And, yeah, I had put my stuff into start, – started getting ready to put my stuff into storage. The day before we step off, um, the XO pulls me and the other lieutenant aside. The launcher platoon leader and I got to there at the same time. We both arrived in January. And he said, hey, you guys aren't certified yet in the van. Because we had been doing air battles, but we had not yet gone to the official THAAD fire control course, which was like a four-week, five-week course taught by civilians from Lockheed about how to actually train the system. We knew how to fight the system because the Warrens had been teaching us this whole time, but we hadn't been certified yet officially. And so he's like, yeah, we can't take you guys because you can't officially be the site OIC unless you've been fully certified. So that put the brakes off. Like All of a sudden, we went from 100 to zero. Like, wait, 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 what? We're not deploying with you? It's like, no, no, we have a special class. You guys are going to go to the class but we're all going to deploy without you, which was a real, that was a gut punch. So we had done all this work getting our platoons ready to go, and all of a sudden, hey, wait, 
you got to do this class first. So everybody flew out. I think we had two C5s and three C17s. They put the entire battery on those, and they flew straight from Bliss to Guam with, I think, two mid-air refuelings. It was a, quite a flight for them. So they get there, and they start offloading. Meanwhile, me and the other lieutenant are stuck here at Bliss waiting to go to class the next week, uh, which we did. And, uh, I mean, it was, a, it was a nice class and all, but we would have rather been with our battery that we were ready to go with. Just go, you got to be flexible with these things. So uh, we knocked the class out, and pretty much, I think the day after I was ready to go, we uh, went to the airport, and we had to fly civilian out there. And when you're flying civilian to Guam from Fort Bliss, Texas, there's no direct flights. We arrived in Guam at about 9.30 at night. I remember getting off the plane, and it felt like I'd been slapped in the face with a wet towel. Like, the humidity was unbelievable, especially coming from Fort Bliss, which is the desert. You know, high desert, by the way, thin air. It was very, very humid, and it was like, it was like low 70s Fahrenheit. Once you arrived on ground and you've reintegrated with your battery, what was your role, and what was the you know, kind of the guidance you received? Had, had the North Korean threat changed? Had... You know, did you have a clearer sense of why you were there? And what had the battery been doing in your absence? Uh, so they'd been working a lot. So we showed up, you know, so about, about a month after they came on ground, we show up. And we relieved the one lieutenant um, who, so they grabbed the lieutenant from Alpha 2, which was a sad battery that had just been stood up. And I think he had done the training because he was originally from Alpha 4. I don't even know if they had had their equipment. I don't know they didn't. They didn't even have equipment yet. So they grabbed him and borrowed him because he was certified. He was a senior first lieutenant. I think it was their XO. Uh, so we show up, we relieve him. He goes back to Bliss. Uh, at the time, or when we show up, they had ripped a tactical site out of the jungle in the northern part of the island, which used to be an old as I said, an old B-29 runway. So Guam during World War II had five runways that we had built. Um, two, three of them are still used. One of them is the International Airport in the middle. One of them is Naval Base Guam in the south. And one of them is, Naval, is Anderson Air Force Base in the northeast. Uh, the, fourth, the fourth one, the fifth one's way down in the south. Nobody touched that. The fourth one was used by the Marines on Guam as a, their C-130 pilots, I think, were using it to, like, practice, like, take off and landing. So it was, it was austere. Like I'm pretty sure the asphalt had not been paved since 1950 and it was all jungle. So the CBs came in because we can't have jungle in front of the radar because it's going to, you know, block the signal. They ripped a, I think it was almost three square miles of just ripped it all up and piled it all in the middle of the runway. Uh, so it looked like, it looked like photographs of Verdun or even honestly Okinawa in 45. Like the junk, it just been ripped to shreds. Trees pulled up by their roots, you know, everything else. And then in the middle of it, a bunch of tents uh, and our dad site just sitting there pointed up toward North Korea. The uh, situation on the ground was very weird because we fell under not the local you know, Air Force commander or anything like that because this is air defense. We're a national line above core. We answered directly to 94th Army Air and Missile Defense Command in Pearl Harbor, uh, Joint Base Hickam, who then reported directly to PACOM. So USERPAC, U.S. Army Pacific, and then PACOM. So we were, but at the same time, because just to make things more complicated, we were still underneath 11th Air Defense Brigade at Fort Bliss. So we had to do two semi-annual training briefs because we had to brief our old brigade commander back in Bliss. We also had to brief our new boss in 94th Double MDC because we had a task force commander who was a lieutenant colonel. And they were all very, very excited because this was the most operationalized air defense has been since 
the Nike years, you know, back in the 70s. Like, this is real homeland defense, high-speed stuff. And we're going to look perfect because, you know, everyone's watching us. We had DVs come through every single week. Um, Admiral uh, Harry Harris, I think, who was at the time, excuse me, General Harry Harris, who was, I think it was the time, it was like USERPAC commander. So we had multiple four-stars coming through, foreign DVs coming through, Australians, South Koreans, Japanese. Everybody wanted a piece of us. And because of that, everything had to get kept very tight. So we were running 24-hour shifts out on the site, and we were under GO1. General order one, so no drinking, um, you know, or anything like that. Always on call, but we're on an Air Force base. And the Air Force base, the Air Force base is full of, you know, PCS Air Force officers and enlisted with their families. You know, it has a PX, it has a commissary. This is a U.S. territory. There's a bit of a, you know, a bit of a dichotomy going on here. So you have this Army battery who is... Oh, yeah, we're at war right now. You know, we're doing PT at 5.30 in the morning. We're running up and down singing cadences, doing rock marches. And the Air Force guys are kind of looking at us. And I was like, why are you guys acting like this? Like, it's fine. It's not that big a deal. But now we had to prove them that we were taking this job very, very seriously. So that was it. We kind of settled into the routine of uh, we, because there were four. There were four site crews. Uh, one, so the three platoon leaders, and then we had uh, one of our warrant officers was a site OIC too. So we would do one day on 24, one day off, and then two days basically doing office work or other leg work around the site, you know, site improvements. And uh, it was very grindy, and it was, uh, it, it, was, it was pretty austere. We were in the visiting airmen's quarters. Um, power was not very reliable, especially during monsoon season. Air conditioning, not reliable. Water went out once, I think, for a couple of days. And we had to eat MREs, like, in these. That, that's, that was just more of a thing of just Guam. Guam itself is a fairly austere location, even though it's a U.S. territory. Um, you get power outages and water outages more frequently than you would think. So that was part of it, but that wasn't unique to just us. Everybody had to go through that on the base. I mean, it's, it's a fascinating discussion that here you are on Guam on a PCS base and acting as if you are about to you know, cross the line of departure in an invasion. But obviously you're there for a reason. Strategic picture, what sort of guidance did you receive from your battery commander? You know, if Pete Mitchell is in the van and the balloon goes up, what... What was your role, and, and what had you been told to be ready for? So that that was definitely something they really, I mean, that was the main focus. So whenever we did, obviously, site changeover, you'd come in, uh, you'd get the threat brief, the intel brief, which was, we had a, we had a warrant fully devoted just to that. Inter- like in, like in, he w- His job was to basically figure out from... Um, MDA, Missile Defense Agency, and and uh, MISIC, the other intelligence people, like, what is going on in North Korea and also in the areas around North Korea, and just measuring their threat level. We would have, like, we would have, real, like, oh, they're going downtime for now because it's planting season, and a lot of their military gets pulled off of active duty to help with the rice planting, and then same with harvest. So, like, we had relative lulls in their activity. We had high parts of their activity. Uh, we were constantly watching the scope, and we had, obviously, there were contingencies in place for, like, if something happened, fortunately, it never did. They did. They would do test launches, but the test launches, you, we were actually told beforehand that they were test launches because we were able to pick that up, and so we wouldn't freak out. And then also their trajectory. Fascinating thing about like the state of air defense tech, because um, missiles follow ballistic trajectories. Whenever their motor cuts out, that's it. 
you can determine their endpoint within a very, very fine like level of certainty. So when it's coming up at a certain vector at a certain velocity, you know where it's going to land within a certain whatever. They call it a cap, a circular error probability. So you we would know whether or not to be actually worried about these things. If, if it actually happened, we had... Um, so we, it was pretty fascinating. We had we had a satellite radio connection directly to uh, Joint Base Pearl Hickam. <laughs> we had to do hourly radio checks, but there was a time delay because it was a satellite radio. So you, it was like a three-second delay because we were so far away from Hawaii. People don't really appreciate how big the, the Pacific Ocean is. Uh, but you would stomp the, the radio transmitter, and then you'd say the, you know, call in, and then you'd let go of it. And then you'd wait five seconds, and then you get the response back from them. That was... Um, not the primary means of communication. That was just a backup. If it actually went up, we were supposed to text them on uh, Merck, Merck, the Merck chat uh, over obviously a, a SIPR network. So that's how we kept our updates. So if like, and we'd run drills like that too. So we had a special chat channel for exercise, exercise, and we would run exercise. We would run a air drill. Hey, they're launching Torque Guam. Here's the alert, fireball, which means or scud on scope, which means hey, we got something. It's coming here. Factor, you know, factor means where it's going to hit. Guam. And then that, once we sent that to 94th, they send the, like, they shoot what there's the Red Star cluster up, and that would put everybody on alert. And then we just do our job and focus. At that point, it's in, like, the chaos hands, the Combined Air Operations Center. They take care of that. We just focus, okay, can we shoot this down before it comes in? Or there's a lot coming in, and we need to preserve our missiles. So, like, we need to rack and stack as it is that was what was always on our minds when we were running the air battles they were very realistic we didn't do things they weren't shooting out of the water you know it was always this is the combat scenario practice makes perfect and just keep running it so it was it was very um disjointing it was very odd it was it kind of felt like you were in a movie or in a um a video game of some sort because these <laughs> when you see these missiles coming in on the screen to you it's just, they're just you know targets to hit but and you don't think about the strategic implications of what you're doing, or the fact that there's a four-star general actively watching your radar picture with, you know, with bated breath, wondering if you're going to be able to execute this. You don't think about that stuff when you're actually in it. You just think, okay, here's the mission, and now I need to execute. But it is very different. I mean, when you think about what most second lieutenants do as platoon leaders, how they're really only affecting you know 100 yards around them, maybe 200 yards, uh, and this is affecting the entire like whole countries and things like that it's something you don't really think about I, th I honestly think most don't think about it but i would do that i would just you know spend time scrolling around the map you know on like the on the radar scopes like oh yeah i'd work on my geography skills like, try to count like the the different marianas islands heading up and all the different people on it things like that it's, just, it's a very very strange thing to be doing it's, it's i think it's a symptom of the modern world where like you have so much power and like responsibility placed in people's hands and if you think about that it messes it, it messes with you so you just purposely kind of separate yourself from it you went there on 90 day orders i'm assuming you stayed longer yeah that was uh yeah that was pretty fun so that that was uh, obviously i think i think all the all the older you know officers and ncos they knew this was going to happen it took me by surprise because i was hoping without hope we'd be coming home by you know may or june like all right you know uh so that that came through the annoying thing was they didn't just tell us it was going to be a year they kept giving us 30-day extensions so it was always like we'd come up on it uh 30-day extension 30-day extension 30-day extension I should have known they were going to keep us there for at least a year uh, because they needed time for Alpha 2 to get trained up. Because like, they didn't have a THAAD battery to replace us like, fully. So while we were sitting out there, 
Alpha 2 Pack and Bliss was frantically getting everybody certified, getting crews in, because they were going to come out and then fall in on our equipment. Uh, I don't think yet they were going to make it a permanent posting, but they decided that while we were there. They're just like, okay, Alpha 2 is going to come out, they're going to fall in, and then we're going to build a third battery, and they're going to full-time basically come out here and they're just going to stay out here which is what has happened that's why it's an enduring mission in guam right now we did not know that we didn't know it was going to be an enduring mission we were still under the impression i think while we were there we were just going to pack up and head home whenever so we just kept getting extended and extended and extended um it was pretty rough on a lot of the soldiers because like we didn't get so we didn't get any of your standard deployment benefits right because it was a u.s territory we didn't get tax-free you know we didn't get hazardous duty pay nothing the only thing was for the married soldiers who got family separation pay, which is an extra 250 bucks a month. That ruffled several feathers because we were not we were not having a good time. This was not a tropical vacation. Um, we were working just actually no, we were working harder than most of the Patriot units that were in CENTCOM at the time in the Gulf states or in Kuwait because those those guys had been there for 10 years. They were on hardened sites. They were doing missions that had been done constantly. Um, they were not necessarily pulling 24 hours on, 24 hours off. Yeah, they could also have three beers a day, you know, at Alba, you know, at whatever. We didn't get any of that, uh, so that was that was kind of a. It didn't it didn't help morale because uh, you, you felt underappreciated. How did you deal with that with your soldiers? How did your platoon sergeant help with that process? Uh, we tried to do fun things around the island, which is difficult. It's very small. And again, under GO1, you had to get permission just to leave the Air Force Base uh, to do things. Uh, there were some MWR on Anderson helped out a lot. There were some hiking trips to the, um, you know, to the like, interior parts of Guam. There is a, there's a little cave, by the way, that a, a Japanese soldier hid in until the mid-70s. Uh, fascinating story so like there's there's a few interesting tourist things there sadly we did a real number on the island when we were taking it back and the japanese did too so there's not much in terms of like military history that's left uh besides that and a few other things uh it's a very small island i think it's about 16 miles long and three miles wide it's very small you get you get island fever quick so the morale thing was mainly focusing on the mission and one day at a time and Trying to also, my platoon sergeant was good at this, and just reminding them how important this was. Uh, this is the key to the Pacific here, and this is a, this is this is part of something bigger. I didn't realize this at the time, but this was also when President Obama was doing the pivot to the Pacific. I did not appreciate this at the time either. This was the first major U.S. like troop redeployment into the Pacific. It was a this this action had long-lasting ramifications that we're still living with today. Did not see that at the time, though. Second Lieutenant Mitchell did not see this. Second Lieutenant Mitchell was focused on, you know, get 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 my shift schedule done, get the radar up and running, make sure there's no faults, and uh, just keep sweating it out. It's an interesting dichotomy, right? You've got a shift schedule, a shift in, you know, mission, keeping morale up, a lot of typical young Second Lieutenant tasks, but with a lot more weight in some regards, right? National-level strategic concerns are on your shoulders, how did you deal with that? And you mentioned earlier you, you tried not to, but it must have slipped in. And did your soldiers ever address their thoughts with you? It was a running joke that whenever we had a fault on our radar, like the Pentagon would know about it before we did. So, again, it's it had to do with the fact that at, at the Combined Air Operations Center, they're watching what we're what we're doing and if anything if we don't come up green on you know whatever radar launcher the fire control center if there's any fault and we don't come up on time on our radiation schedule which we had to 
tell them beforehand because this sucker's powerful. When we were radiating, you had to make sure commercial air traffic was routed way away from it because it's just a gigantic microwave beam blasting off into space. We had a 100-meter keep-out zone on the ground in front of it because it'll kill you. I mean, let alone heat up an MRE. I never tried that, but I heard you could. Uh, but if you weren't radiating on time, that was a that was a CCIR. Like that, if you were not radiating on time, that was a serious, serious problem that you had to immediately report up because high-level people were very interested in knowing what we were doing and why we were not doing it when we were supposed to be. So that was – it kind of became uh, – people. Pe- I felt it was micromanagement. You know, it's like, do, do I really need, you know, a three-star or a two-star general who's actively in the weeds? I'm sure my battery commander felt it much more acutely because he was the one who had to be doing most of the briefing because we had, like I said, we had a task force commander. We had a lieutenant colonel. We were the only unit under him. So this is a lieutenant colonel task force commander whose only job is to double-check what a captain is doing who is then double-checking what his lieutenants are doing. Lots of attention zeroed down on me and my little lieutenant's in the van with our TCAs because we're the tip of the part of the expression spear, you know, even though we're sitting in an aluminum box van, everyone wants to know what we're up to. So it, it kind of became a bit of a kind of a humorous thing. Like, Oh, be careful. You know, don't drop a wrench into the cooling unit. You know, the secretary of the army will want to know who dropped it. Uh, things like that. But we were all aware of just how many people were watching us. And like I said, the DV visits did not stop. People just kept running through. Um, we had a we had an infantry platoon assigned to us. They're from Alaska. I forget which division, but uh, uh, they were they were it was a platoon plus because we didn't have enough soldiers to handle site security. We barely had enough just to man the system. And so because this was a very tightly controlled site, like the infantry platoon was there, and they were checking IDs and making sure nothing happened. Fortunately, nothing did. Worst that ever happened. I think a deer got stuck on our barbed wire once, and they had to they had to cut it out, like take care of it. But that was uh, fortunately there were no serious like security issues. You wind up on Guam for a year. You get home. Did you have a shift in your understanding of your role as a as an officer in air defense? I definitely did. Also, I think the branch itself kind of had a re- like a minor revitalization. All of a sudden, like there was a little more swagger on base. Um, first armor had just moved there. And so it was a little, it was like a cool, like, Hey, yeah, like we're, Hey, we just went on an actual operational deployment, you know, like that's pretty awesome. We're still a very, all of a sudden, Hey, now we're a very relevant branch, very important branch. And that kind of flowed out from Thad to the other high med units, like the Patriot units. So I wasn't actually in Thad for much longer when I came back because they're just batteries and there's not much room for lieutenants when you've done your platoon leader time. And so it was, and there's only one XO spot. So it was, uh, I was only, I think, in Alpha 4 for another three or four months. And then they moved me to a Patriot uh, battery to take an XO position there because they wanted to keep moving me off the pipeline. So I stayed in high mad, but from there, I went to a Patriot. But uh, while I was there, Again, air defense, the deployment tempo is ceaseless. Uh, they were moving the brigade headquarters out to Qatar, to Al-Yadid Air Force Base, to to take over the CENTCOM mission. Uh, that was 11th Air Defense Artillery Brigade. And they needed a plans officer in the S3. And my battery commander recommended me because I had just come back from Guam. And he said, I because of that, I had this kind of operational understanding of what's going on that... The other, he said that the other platoon leaders or the Patriot guys did not necessarily have. And because of that, I ended up going on two deployments with about a six-month break in between. So I basically came home, 
got married <laughs> and then immediately redeployed. <laughs> so uh, my wife's a real trooper, honestly, like hanging out through all of this. That's the life of air defense. So I, I went I went from a strategic assignment in the Pacific and then as the plans officer for an air defense brigade, I was briefing, you know, one-star general, you know, the DADC, the deputy air defense commander, and then even further, uh, this, uh, the SATO, the senior air defense officer. Pete, I want to thank you for being on the spear today. You know, like, like I let off with, you know, we do gunfights, we do raids, we do ambushes, we do IEDs. We don't do strategic very often. So thanks for that glimpse into the strategic realm as a lieutenant. Thanks, Tim. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Spear. The Spear is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. Be sure you're subscribed to The Spear on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, where you can also give the podcast a rating or leave a review, which helps us reach new listeners. And if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening.